Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Monthly Community. I'm David Moore. And I'm Kellen McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview with Ryan Carson of NY Perg about packaging and reduction in the Recycling Act. Then, Sina Bazella Hickey talks to organizers of Wednesday's evening panel on tenants' rights at Jane Connolly Social Club in Troy. Later on, Andrea Cunliff brings us continued coverage from the fight to pass the Clean Slate Act. After that, for this week's look into history, we asked co-host and minister David Moore about his experience in the peace movement. He's also my co-host for it tonight. Finally, educator and poet Rhonda Ronshek is profiled by Tom Francis in this week's Peace Bucket. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that a group of Hudson Park area residents are pushing the city of Albany to regulate short-term rentals contracted through Airbnb and Verbo after dealing with a problem property for months. Their requests ranged from banning homeowners from using their properties as short-term rentals to regulating them to help with ongoing issues such as trash. An audit by the New York State Comptroller found that more is needed to be done on the state level to protect bees and other pollinators. It is said that the Department of Agriculture and Markets could have been doing more to protect disease, uh, detect disease and parasites, including improving its registry of insects of apiaries and developing new procedures to inspect the honeybee shipments. The study uh, estimates uh, managed honeybee colonies with losses at more than 50% in recent years. Amid high interest rates and low inventory, the slump in New York housing sales continued through December with a 31% drop compared to December 2021. The state of New York has been awarded more than $390 million in bonds and subsidies to create or preserve more than 1,600 affordable, sustainable, and supportive homes across the state. This includes $51.5 million for Taylor one apartments in the city of Troy, two vacant Troy Housing Authority properties will de- be demolished and replaced with a newly constructed seven-story building ca- containing 141 apartments as well as a retail space. State Republican lawmakers on Monday unveiled a plan they said would boost public safety. The proposals include a repeal of bail reform, a repeal of a ban on solitary confinement, as well as measures to increase penalties for a number of offenses and reduce illegal weapons trafficking. The proposals came as a new Siena College poll found that more than half of Democrats and over two-thirds of Republicans consider crime a serious matter. The Honest Weight Food Co-op will not be part of an effort to open downtown grocery stores in Schenectady. The group cited Electric City Food Co-op's Reluctance to allow members to work for discounts. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding Capital District through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518 
2390. Environmental groups are encouraging the expansion of the 40-year-old bottle bill to include measures which would address the solid waste crisis. Mark Dunley speaks with Ryan Carson from Nyperg about ways to reduce packaging waste by 50% over the next decade. We're joined by Ryan Thornson Carson, who is a campaign organizer with uh, NIPER, the New York Public Interest Research Group. And uh, Ryan has been particularly focused on a couple of the solid waste issues with the governor's budget, uh, presumably coming out sometime around February 1st, trying to push once again to expand the bottle bill and also trying to push a good um extended producer responsibility law. So so Ryan, you know, why why these are these two issues important to New York State residents? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So when we're talking about these two issues and, you know, they really are complementary, we're dealing with a solid waste crisis here in New York State. This really um, has been an ongoing crisis. It's something that's been building for decades, but it's been really exacerbated by um, the decision um, just a couple of years ago from China to stop accepting solid waste. So it's really kind of brought this to the forefront of New Yorkers' minds, and it's been something that even Governor Hochul has been talking about. So we're excited to see what these programs that she plans to announce are. But, um, you know, last year we saw an EPR proposal from Governor Hochul that really didn't meet the mark. It also didn't include an expansion of New York State's bottle bill. Um, so we're hoping that the program that she, um, you know, brings to the table this year is going to be a strong longer one. Um, and, you know, we're going to uh, really fight to make sure that New York has the most comprehensive um, solid waste um, disposal programs that we possibly can coming out of this legislative session. Now, the, the Bonneville in New York's been around, you know, a long time. I don't know if it's hitting its 40th anniversary or something, but it seems to have been probably the most effective single programs that the state has to actually reduce, you know, litter and, and solid waste. So how are groups trying to improve the bottle bill and, and given it's you know generally very positive track record, what's the opposition do to yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. I mean, so since the bottle bill came into effect 40 years ago, um, 40 years ago this year, it's actually reduced roadside litter by 70%, which was um, really what it was intending to do. And there's a lot of space for us to grow in terms of litter reduction. But to get to what exactly the bottle bill expansion is precisely, what we're talking about is raising the deposit. So the economic incentive for people to bring their bottles and cans back. Um, so that incentive right now is at five cents. And as you can imagine, just um, years and years of inflation have kind of uh, devastated that economic incentive. So we want to join in states um, like Michigan, um, soon to be Connecticut, um, places like Oregon that have a 10 cent bottle deposit. So we're really excited to push that. But we also want to bring in a bunch of new types of containers into the program. The last time the program was expanded, which was back in 2009, we added in water bottles. Um, but what we really want to focus on with this expansion is bringing in whole types of um, glass and plastic that have been exempt. Um, so when we're talking about glass, we're talking about wine and liquor bottles. When we're talking about plastics, we're talking about um, all the remaining types of containers not covered under the law. Um, right now, we actually decide what is covered under the law by the beverage inside of the container and not the container itself. 
Um, so for example, Pepsi can make a tea beverage made out of the same type of PET plastic that their cola product is packaged under. Um, they're made in the same facilities. Um, they're just as recyclable, but just because of the type of beverage inside of the container, one is covered, the cola beverage, and the other is not the tea beverage. So we wanna make this a little bit easier on consumers, but this is also really going to help out New York's recycling rate. And you know, just to be honest here, New York's recycling rate is um, pretty pitiful statewide. We're typically sitting around 18%. And, you know, these programs like bottle deposits really make sure that the hard work of recycling gets done. Um, a bottle that is brought back through the bottle bill program um, to, you know, point of sale, it's much, much more likely to be turned into a new package um, than if you were to put it in curbside recycling. Now, why doesn't industry go back to, say, glass refillable bottles? And, you know, when I've traveled occasionally down in, you know, Central America, you know, they seem to be much more into the glass returnable bottles than here in the United States. So why aren't they going to returnable, refillable glass bottles? We definitely think that that is the direction that the industry should move. And we do think that um, Bottle Bill, along with a effective piece of EPR legislation, um, would definitely incentivize producers to do so. And, you know, glass is definitely the way that we should be move moving towards a lot of particularly beverage packaging. Single-use plastics are just becoming a major, major public health pro uh, problem. And so with programs like EPR and with an, a, a robust bottle bill accompanying it, we can um, really predict that that's where the market will definitely start to shift towards. And you know, with glass, it's just much more sustainable. You don't have to deal with things like microplastics that we really don't even understand the public health impact of. And so with these bills working in tandem, we can really incentivize the market to to start moving towards a more sustainable model. So let's move on to extended producer responsibility in a little bit more detail. And this is a bill that frankly, even, you know, the policy wonks and the environmental movement um, sometimes seem to get confused about. You know, we've been talking about EPR for, for decades. The general idea is that those who produce waste, um, the Pepsi and Cokes and other manufacturers should be responsible, including financially for its disposal, but there's been sort of competing proposals and, and competing in recent years, some advanced by uh, the waste industry in order to give them control uh, as people are demanding you know, less and less waste. And then some developed by groups like Nyberg and Beyond Plastics that try to focus more on actually reducing the amount of waste, particularly since the ability to reduce uh, or recycle plastic is rather limited. So how do we you know, where's the governor standing on this? What do you think she's likely to put in the budget? And and how, you know, that 45 second elevator wrap, how do you explain that um, to the average consumer about the difference in their approaches? For sure. So last year, we saw a, a uh, proposed uh, EPR bill from Governor Hochul that really did not meet the mark. It basically put the producers in charge of managing our waste disposal system. Um, and so in the same way that you wouldn't have, say, Exxon Mobil decide how we should mitigate the worst effects of climate change, we wouldn't really have Pepsi decide what the best, most sustainable you know, container for packaging would necessarily be. So Governor Hochul proposed last year in her executive budget an EPR program that would have put those producers in charge. Um, NYPIRG, Beyond Plastics, um, groups in our New York State Weights Coalition, Coalition, Waste Reduction Coalition are working really hard with Senator Rachel May on her proposed extended producer responsibility mo uh, model, which is um, Senate Bill 1064. 
that bill actually has some really, really great rates and benchmarks in terms of reduction recycling. So kind of top among those would be a 50% reduction of packaging waste over the next decade and setting real environmental standards for packaging that would eliminate things like PFAS, mercury, and lead in packaging and would crucially make it so that we could no longer burn plastics here in New York State, um, as opposed to the governor's proposal, which allows the actual companies that have gotten us into this mess um, to start to set their own kind of rates and dates. Now, you know, Governor Hochul did not do it all well uh, in the recent election, given that there was, what, two and a half million more Democrats and Republicans, and yet she only won by five percentage points. And you contrast that, say, to the, the uh, Environmental Bond Act, where two-thirds of the voters, you know, support of it, which shows, you know, very strong support for the environment. Has she taken that to heart, that pro-environmental measures are actually much more uh, popular with the voters than her uh, existing platform has been? And is, is that causing her at all to sort of shift a little bit more in the pro-environment uh, direction? Well, really hope that that's going to be the case. We're going to know for sure on February 1st what this um, proposed executive budget from Governor Hochul is going to look like. But I can tell you in terms of what her state briefing book looked like during her state of the state address that it really does, particularly around you know solid waste, leave a lot to be desired here. I mean, we led a coalition of 300 organizations that signed on to a letter around the bottle bill and, um, you know, we have yet to hear any inkling of an expansion of that program. And New Yorkers really are incredibly concerned about waste. I mean, I live in New York City and I hear all the time about just the amount of litter that we're having to deal with in a way pre-pandemic we weren't really seeing. And so this is really starting to affect people's day-to-day -day lives. And we're really hoping that Governor Hochul is going to listen to New York State's voters because these are widely popular programs. You know, public polling shows that these types of extended producer responsibility programs, of which the bottle bill is particularly an EPR program, are incredibly popular with voters. So it would make we, a lot we, of we sense for her to move in that direction. We only got 20 seconds left. Talking to Ryan Thornson Carson, Nyperg, Nyperg.org. Ryan, if people want to convey their thoughts to Governor Hochul, how best to do that? Yeah, they should call her directly at, at her office number in Albany. Uh, you should just make a call. And if you want to get more involved in the campaign, check out nyperg.org or beyondplastics.org to get more involved. And we'll connect you with your legislators. 518-474-8390. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. To repeat that contact information, you can go to nyperg.org or beyondplastics.org. Troy Democratic Socialists of America's Housing Committee is having an educational event on building tenant power at the James Connolly Social Club on Wednesday, January 25. A panel will speak about proposed legislation and other efforts to build the power of the renters that make up a majority of Troy. Coming up at James Connolly Social Club, there is a Troy DSA housing presentation, and joining me now are two of the organizers. Thank you. Yes, I'm Caroline Nagy. Um, I live in Troy, and I'm a member of the Troy DSA Housing Committee, which has organized this event. And I'm Cody Bloomfield, another member of Troy DSA's Housing Committee. Thank you for coming on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Before the recording, we were talking about how it's really important to have this conversation in Troy because the tenants' rights are very different from Troy and Albany. Caroline, could you elaborate on what you were beginning to tell me? 
So living in Troy, um, we are a city that is majority renter. Most people who live in Troy rent their homes. And yet, um, the all everyone except for one council member, um, and that is my council member, Keani Conley um, Wilson, uh, are all homeowners. And I think there is an attitude among a lot of folks in Troy um, that tenants' rights are just not that important. Um, what we've seen in Troy is a real lack of local protections for tenants, unlike in Albany. You know, we don't have a certificate of occupancy, um, an inspection program, making sure that homes are in, um, you know, decent uh, repair. Also, um, unlike Albany, you know, um, our leaders are not prioritizing securing housing attorneys uh, for folks who are at risk of eviction, while Albany is actually entering um, a pilot program, which we're going to hear all about um, at our event. Uh, um, to actually provide people who are at risk of losing their home with an attorney to actually help them in their case. Another thing, um, you know, while um, Albany passed a municipal good cause bill that would protect tenants from unreasonable or unfair evictions and unsustainable rent increases um, in Troy, you know, that's never even been brought to a vote. The point of this is not to trash Troy, but rather we're holding this event to get a sense of like what's possible. What are some things that, you know, what are some steps that we can take right now to build tenant power and increase protections for tenants in Troy? And so we actually have, I think, a really exciting panel. Um, We'll have some folks from Albany talking about the work that they've done. We also have um, two amazing Troy organizers um, and and tenants, uh, Marquita Edwards and Kiani, um, who will be joining the event, as well as a statewide organizer, Sia Weaver, who is part of Housing Justice uh, for All, and who can um, talk about, you know, what, in addition to what um, municipalities can do, what are some of the um, changes that we need to make at um, the at the state level. I'll add a little bit. So I had some statistics that I had pulled up for the event. And according to the Census Bureau, one in five, which is 23% of Troy residents live in poverty with the per capita income in the past 12 months recorded as less than 28,000. At the per capita income, the median gross rent of 964 would consume more than 40% of these households' annual income before taxes. So I think it's really important to note, too, that folks' wages aren't keeping up with inflation. And there are so many people that are housing insecure right now or just on the brink. And our community's resources for housing, like the lack of affordable housing, um, like Caroline's talking about, the lack of tenant support, these things are are reaching a real tipping point in terms of becoming uh, like a catastrophe of sorts for people and in regard to their housing. You know, nationally, we have seen incredible rent inflation um, in the last uh, couple of years. And I think in a city like Troy, another issue is that, you know, we're close to New York City, we're close to Boston, um, you know, with the rise of remote work, you know, a lot of folks leaving larger cities, 
we've seen a real influx of new folks and um, which is okay. Um, but the real problem is get it, you know, is all of the housing investors who've been priced out of New York City who want to come up here and, you know, extract um, wealth from community members. And I think, you know, all you have to do is go and walk around, you know, some of our neighborhoods, walk around South Troy, walk around North Central, you can see, um, you know, the kind of con housing conditions that Troy renters are expected to live with. And um, they're, completely unacceptable, you know, um, buildings falling apart, uh, leaks, um, you know, lacking heat, um, all of these things are highly detrimental for anyone's well-being, but especially for children, um, for their health, you know, for um, asthma and, you know, education, educational success, um, you know, it really, uh, having, you know, safe, stable housing is so important um, to childhood, um, you know, uh, well-being as well as families. And the other thing is, you know, as rents increase in Troy, we don't want to lose people. We want everyone who wants to be able, who wants to be in Troy to be in Troy. I think, you know, we really don't want to see a, the kind of gentrification and displacement, you know, that you will, that we have seen in cities like Kingston and Hudson. You mentioned local, statewide, national. Where are the most effective laws implemented? We talked a lot about Troy versus Albany. So is it on the city or have some statewide laws helped protect tenants? So I think you actually need all of the above. Um, the federal government has been out to lunch on um, renter issues for decades. And um, actually, January 25th, uh, President Biden is going to make his very first policy pronouncements um, on tenants' rights. And, you know, we're still all waiting to see, like, what's going to be included. I think, you know, the, the right level is every single <laughs> level, unfortunately. You know, I think getting good cause passed in New York State would be the single biggest um, game changer for tenants. Um, so often we've seen uh, situations where people, you know, people will come to us and say, my building is getting sold and my land, you know, my landlord wants me out or the new owners want me out, what can I do? And right now, unfortunately, if you live in Troy, the answer is nothing. And I don't think that's acceptable. I think that everyone has a right to stable, safe housing that they can afford. And I think you really, you know, you don't, you really need all levels of government as well as, you know, nonprofits, organizers, um, tenant leaders, really to 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 build a change. So yeah, my answer is, I guess I'm going for a maximalist, um, all of the above uh, approach. The pricing out idea, the New York State's hesitancy to tax millionaires and billionaires, is, is this kind of linked in with the uh, real estate getting priority over individual rights? And how do we fight against that? One of our panelists, as Caroline said, is going to be C.O. Weaver from Housing Justice for All. And they have a really great resource on their website that's called Pay to Play. And it's a PDF booklet talking about this issue in particular and like the biggest names in real estate and how they actually lobby for on behalf, like I'm making air quotes, like on behalf of tenants and like what are fair, what is affordable housing 
But when you look at like where the money is coming from, it's always coming from the same folks and the same few organizations. Uh, and they're holding all of the power when it comes to real estate. And they are the ones that are lining the pockets of our politicians. And they are the reason that it's really hard to for like smaller organizations like ourselves to fight for these rights and these protections because they do have a lot of resources. I think New York politics has really undergone a sea change since 2016, um, when a lot of folks became a bit a lot more interested in politics than they were before. And, um, you know, ending the joint um, Republican and moderate Democratic um, control of the Senate um, and electing folks who are not beholden to the real estate lobbying and money machine is really, you know, what has um, brought about some of the changes that we've seen in the last few years and made a lot of these tenant reforms even possible. And, you know, this is something that you're seeing with the LaSalle judicial nomination um, fiasco. Um, a lot of folks are a lot more aware now of the importance of the judiciary and not having a conservative judiciary. I think that it's very important for tenants' rights um, to have judges who understand and respect um, tenants and their rights. And I think that's another change that we need to see. Thank you both for coming on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Troy Democratic Socialists of America is the Facebook group where that information can be found, Building Tenant Power, Good Cause Eviction and Beyond, taking place on January 25th at 6.30 p.m. at the James Connolly Social Club. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A link to pay, pay the play resource that Cody mentioned is linked in the description of this story at Media Sanctuary. Again, the event is the Building Tenant Power Could Cause Eviction and Beyond. will take place at James Connolly Social Club in Troy on January 25th at 6.30 p.m. The event flyer can be found on Troy DSA Facebook page. For those just turning in, I'm David Moore. And I'm Kaelin McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And Hudson Mohawk Magazine has been covering the fight to pass the Clean Slate Initiative as a bipartisan policy model that works to update and expand eligibility for arrests and cl and conviction clearances if a person stays crime-free for a period of time. Andrea Cunliffe brings us some voices from the January 17th press conference. On January 17th was Clean Slate Advocacy Day at the New York State Capitol. There was a press conference, a rally, and meetings with lawmakers. Hudson Mohawk Magazine was there, and I bring you this reporting. every day walking around and you won't even know that they're formally incarcerated. But the moment that they put their name down on an application, yep. it's a hindrance. It's a roadblock. 
Clean Slate is put into place to eliminate that roadblock, to give people these opportunities that we need. And I speak from personal experience. I'm formerly incarcerated. I just came home in February. And the whole thing is, when I came out, I said to myself, I can do this. Yes, right. yes, yes you can, baby. Go and say, you know what? I want to get my life back together. I want to do good. I want to help my communities. And I went out there. College degree, master's degree. And all I got was, sorry, we cannot help you. Oh, no. Tell them about it, It's not okay. It's not okay. It's terrible. It, it comes to a point where every time you want to do good, it matters not. When you want to succeed, it doesn't matter. That's not what it should be about. The society needs change. It needs to improve. Everything needs to be better. Not to go backwards, but to go forward. Every single time we talk about it, we talk about crime and victim impacts. Fine, we respect that. We understand the pain that people have gone through. But we need to move forward. It must be about new change. It must be about restorative justice, mm -hmm. not right. perpetual punishment. Yes, right, yes, yes. It should not yes. be a situation where I walk in and they're talking about something that happened 25, 35, 45 years ago. They should ask me what I am today. Right. And that's what it's all about. You know? So I hope these words have had an impact. And I tell the individuals who are up there in those rooms, and that need to sign those papers, get out the pen, sign the dotted line. We need to make a difference. I'm speaking not just for myself, but for so many people. And even if you don't help me, help the future. All right, our next speaker, Senator Claire, please step because of my neighbors, family members, constituents who have all been incarcerated formally. We struggle with them. We support our family members. We send commissary. We visit them. They come home. We support them further. They have reformed. They have paid their price. They should be able to get jobs. They should be able to work. Many of them were already victimized by racism in the first place. Deprivation, inequities, disparities. It is doubly unfair to leave incarceration after paying that price and having to pay it all over again. And what they went through when they came out just to get right in society. We have to pass this bill. You know, Dr. King said, the time is always right to do what is right. This is the time to do what's right. Pass clean slate. And finally, I'll just say to you, I remember I hired my staff when I got elected and I got a notice from the Senate. And I opened it and it said, this is to inform you that you have someone on your staff who is formerly incarcerated. Did you know that? And I said, yes, I did. Yes. And that's exactly why I hired him. Because he can relate to my community and have compassion and understanding for those who've made the same mistake. Can't wait. Assemblymember Kellis, please step up. It is such a privilege to be with everyone here today. And I want you all to know that the whole state 
is here. The whole state is behind this piece of legislation. Upstate, give a shout. This is the right thing to do. Now, this bill will reduce recidivism. Why do we say that? Because right now, we are saying that if you've ever been incarcerated, you don't get access to health care. You don't get access to education. You don't get access to housing. You don't get access to benefits. And you don't get access to most jobs. We have many states in this country that have already passed this bill. That is an embarrassment. Yes. This is bipartisan. It has passed in Missouri. It has passed in Utah. It has passed in Texas. And we can't get it done here? That is not acceptable. We will get it done now. We are coming up to a time where we need people to work in this state more than ever. We need bus drivers, we need nurses, we need teachers. We are short in everything. So to think that this bill is only going to affect a small part of the population, you aren't paying attention. We have got to make sure that everyone has access to those jobs and that we work together. We are a family, we are a community. I have a very good friend of mine who is formerly incarcerated he has been denied access to many jobs, but still pushes forward. He created a nonprofit to support raising our children, supporting youth development. I had a play three hours away from Albany, a community youth development play, SpongeBob the Musical. Talk about excitement! Oh, it's fun, enthusiasm. He drove 23 kids all the way from Albany to Ithaca, New York for the experience of joy for kids that do not have access because they come from marginalized populations. He takes them rock climbing, he takes them to theater, he takes them to things they wouldn't have access to. And we say we don't want this person to be part of our society? What are we saying? We need to pass Clean Slate. Thank you so much. Assemblymember Burden. How many times has this been worked over? How many times has it been changed? How many times have there been concessions made? The education department, worried about children, all of those concessions have been made. I'm going to tell you one little story about why we need this. A couple of years ago in budget hearings with the Department of Corrections, I asked Commissioner Anucci, all right, what happens to the formerly incarcerated? Where do they go? And you know what he said? He said the vast majority go to homeless shelters. Homeless shelters. That is absolutely unacceptable. And when I asked him, well, what do you do about transitional housing? Oh, uh, well, we don't do anything about transitional housing. Nobody seems to do anything about transitional housing. And so, clean slate. One of the major reasons for this is so they can get a place to live. How can you have a job if you don't have a place to live? 
You know, the governor made a centerpiece of her state of the state, housing. So let's provide housing yes. to the formerly incarcerated. Yes. So let's, let's get this done now. Clean slate, can't wait. Clean slate. Hey everyone, I'm Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal. I represent the Upper West Side, parts of Hell's Kitchen. And I'm excited to say that I'm the new chair of housing. And that is, that is very important in this context as well. And the philosophy behind this is that you are not your worst mistake. If you spent your time in prison, then once you're out, you're out. It's no more what did you do. We can overcome our pasts. This is just about justice for people. You've completed your time. You've completed your parole. You have no more convictions. Okay, you're fine. You're like you and me. You're like the next person. They're just regular people, and we need to give everyone a hand up. So I'm proud to be here. I'm proud to support this. So 2023, we're going to do it. So, so we've talked about a lot of concepts and a lot of issues uh, related to Clean Slate. Yes, and I hope you've gotten the sense that there is a certain arc that is, t that is transpiring, that it doesn't just begin when a person is released. This is what's going on in the minds of incarcerated people while they're in prison. Mm. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. This really meant a lot to me personally and to the many lives of formerly incarcerated people who just want a second chance, who just want an opportunity to make our lives better and to make our communities better. Thank you so much. This has been Andrea Cunliffe from the Hudson Mohawk Magazine reporting from the Clean Slate Advocacy Day at the New York State Capitol. The Clean Slate Bill is an important topic which we will con con continue to cover here at Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Go to our website and continue listening to our programs. So every night on Tuesday nights for the past month and a half now, we've been producing History Buckets, David Moore and I. For this week's history interview, we're asking my co-host and minister, David Moore, about his experience growing up in the peace movement and his observations around the movement's evolution. For this week, to help me with this interview, I am joined by Sina Bazilahicki. Hello, Sina. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Uh, as we heard in last week's interview about historic Lansingburg, you are a resident of Lansingburg. What brought you there? I moved to the Capital District from Buffalo, New York in 1999 to serve a church and campus ministry. And a few years ago, the church in Rensselaer uh, sold its property and relocated their community of faith to uh, the Cornerstone Community Church in Lansingburg, and they called me to serve as their minister to help them assist in a transition from their previous pastor to their new type of community. So I moved here to the, to the property house that the church provides and became interested in this radio station and the work you do here. Um, I am interested in just starting with your childhood. You did grow up in a, in a household of ministry, and how did this upbringing lay the groundwork for your personal mission in life as you got older? Both my parents were raised in conservative churches, 
and through education, personal experience, and transitions in their lives, my, both of my parents began to move away from a, a conservative way of thinking about Christian faith and the, the witness and work in, in the world. In particular, in the early 1960s, my father began to be deeply influenced by the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the concern for racial equality. He went with other, other ministers and church leaders to the March in Washington in 1963. So I was introduced as a young person to the notion that Christian faith and social witness were linked, that they one grew from out of the other and one influenced how you read the writings of the church and lived in the world. That further developed as the 60s emerged with both continuing struggle for civil rights and then the emergence of the Vietnam War. And for me, that continued in the, in the continuing wrestling with the role of America in the world through empire and through its wars in the, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Yeah, that was at the height of all of it, the 60s, the civil rights movement, movement. The, the Cold Vietnam War. War. But for, for me, the, the issue has, has been to struggle <clears throat> with my understanding of the faith and my role in the world, and then working with peoples in congregations to engage their, their way of, of living in, in the world and, and talking and living and witnessing about the struggle for, for peace. Because it seems so overwhelming and people in churches seem so powerless that it, they struggle to figure out how do, how do we make this real in our own lives. And oftentimes within communities of faith, the, it's easy for people in the, in the congregations to view their witness about peace to charity. It's easy to give money to a local food pantry or provide goods and services to the homeless or send a donation to peace groups that are in, engaged in, in uh, efforts to, to bring peace in Ireland or, or some other place it's much more difficult for them to move toward uh, advocacy about justice or getting involved in talking or writing to their legislature or congresspeople about a policy. So the, the tension has been uh, the struggle between charity and justice and mm -hmm. moving a community of faith to embrace hmm. the justice struggle. It's just been a tension that, that so many church leaders wrestle with it's easy to come up with pronouncements about this, that, and the other thing, but difficult to move people to lift up that struggle in their own lives and embrace it as part of the part of their journey of faith. Hmm. Um, how do you see the relationship between the church and the peace movement? It's very interesting to me because the witness of so many of our churches, the mainline churches, throughout the uh, First World War was to support it. The World War II was to support it, for the most part. But there are always movements of people that said that that the the war is so destructive that we we need to 
put more uh, emphasis on diplomacy and negotiation. Even into the 50s and 60s, prominent positions of authority were filled by members of our, of our churches, and they, in fact, began to, to implement and enforce the role of empire. But within the community of faith, uh, particularly in the 60s, there was a new, new generation of leaders who began to say, wait a minute, we've got to reconsider and rethink and review our relationship with the writings of the faith to look again at what we are called to be and to do. So there's been an effort to, to say we can no longer be just a just war kind of community of faith. We've got to move toward a radical disarmament. And that was possible when there were conflicts with which the government was engaged in, but as these conflicts have become obscure, there's no way to rally around a particular focus. And so the, the struggle today is how do we embrace or develop or organize uh, communities of faith with other other groups and and peoples to look at the role of the defense budget itself and begin to challenge the expense of the uh, U.S. budget on on defense and military and that's that's so vague it's difficult to organize around. I think that could be a whole nother segment just on. Um... On that, and I'm interested, you mentioned rallying around a focus, and it occurred to me, uh, church is very much about the community that is built and finding yeah. commonalities between other people. Yeah. Would, <laughs> do you think that you would be as much embedded in the peace movement if you hadn't oh, approached yes, it yes, through yes, the church affidavit? Yes, um, my college years were at the University of Buffalo, and, and it was a hotbed of, of, of protest, and that that shaped me as much as as my influence from my my family and and faith tradition. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, David. Uh, thank you for joining us and telling you more about your work, your work in the peace movement, your work at the church, and uh, sharing so much of that with us. It's been my pleasure, and I'm glad to be with you too. And this week's Poetry Bucket from Tom Francis speaks with an educator and poet, Rhonda Ronsheck, about her writing and her poem, The Woman. Take a moment to center yourself for her reading. Rhonda Rosenheck is a poet, humorist, and Bible translator living in New York's capital region. Rhonda was an educator for over 30 years and has since retired and returned to writing. Our conversation starts with listening to her poem, The Woman, that she read on October 2nd, 2018 at the Lobby in Albany. The Woman is part of a crime poem series of 25 pieces that Rhonda has been working on for a number of years. I asked Rhonda about her love of mysteries, her start in writing, and where that poem in particular came from. The bed, visible through the legs of adults and a child circled round, looks crisp and taut as if there is no woman beneath its sheets, sending to electronic stanchions signals that measure life. Breathing, check. BP, eh. Heartbeat, slow. Sitting across the room on vigil at another bed, I can see only the child's silky brown curls, forehead, eyelids, and hand 
stretching to touch the woman's fingers, eyelids, and lips. White-coated man, wrinkled at the seat, addresses the circled mourners. We've put her under, as you can see, into a medically-induced coma. The head trauma for this woman was severe. She needs to rest, or at least slow, to reverse, or at least slow the swelling. The child's hand caresses an earlobe. She signals to a standing woman a question, and that one, leaning down, signals back that all will be well. But I can see that one's eyelids, and the left one is twitching. Like that group, I am slow, dulled from this waiting forever, my numb arms circled round my purse, bulky with nothing useful. I am a woman in grief, too, preemptive like these people. Sad, you see, and beneath that, angry, soon, but not yet that I, but not that I yet see, bubbles of rage will surface, pop, surface, pop. Signals of the eruption, the fiery spitting spew of this and that woman from whom all meaning has been ripped, whose eyelids cannot wash clear these gritty truths, and whose eyes are circled by dark confessions of despair. You see, I have been slow to piece together the, that, that clearly beloved woman with mine, slow to understand that the veering car she did not see was my wife's, whose drinking we fought over and circled around like a stupid hound's chased tail. I look for signals that they know who we are, but I see only tear-swollen eyelids. The child, my failure that she becomes a motherless woman, Failure to reign in my wife, herself a motherless woman, raped by a drunken father who, quick to exploit, was slow to, God, to, get, to gauge the lava raging beneath her skin, under her eyelids. A man nurturing, finally, albeit the hemlocks and pines you see out beyond our creek. My failure to catch the signals that she was not saved by revenge, that despair circled eddied like sewage, circled her vitality like the circle round that woman whose child is unclear, whose life signals are dim, beeping, slow, and whom I see through useless, dry-as-dust eyelids. First thing I ever read that I liked to read was A Hardy Boy's Mystery. Read that first one, I just, you know, ripped through every single one that was in the house, for years, every single book that was anywhere near us, most of which were mystery and espionage, because that's what everybody in my father's family read and did a book exchange. So every time somebody would come over, they had armfuls of these books. So there was no dearth of these, these books. And, and this is almost comfort food for me. I started out writing poetry and essays and, and, and poetry kind of serious work when I was young. And then I stopped writing really creatively the whole time I was in education. And when I retired, I presumed that I would write mysteries um, because that's what I love, right? That's what I read. I, I, don't, I don't read other things. That's what I read. And I, I found out that um, probably the reason I love detective stories so much is that I'm I'm not a good detective, so they keep me, they keep me in suspense. <laughs> They're not very good. So what I, I, I was struggling, and I went to uh, the uh, Pyramid Lake Women's 
Writers, which is a, a women's writing retreat up uh, uh, up at the uh, Pyramid Life Center, uh, just north of Scroon Lake. I took to this was shortly after I made this commitment to return to writing, and I and poetry was just coming out. Poems were coming out, and I was working on this wonderful detective and her sidekick, and I had the whole backstory, and I I just. I couldn't figure out how she figured anything out. You know, it was a really, I was really stalled with it and confused. And uh, I was taking two workshops, one with a poet, Ellie, and one with a uh, narrative writer. And they approached me together at lunch one day and said, look, just write poems. When stories want to come out, they'll come out. And once she heard that, she was motivated to start creating. So I went that afternoon and I wrote my first two crime poems and they just came out as poetry does for me. There's just not a blockage. I, I kind of I set a I set up a scenario for a poem to come out somehow and it just flows out. And all of a sudden that was happening with this. So. And one of the reasons is because I don't have to solve anything. I have to go into the kernel of a particular moment and explore it, which is what I do with poetry. So that's what I do with these. And the series is mostly about, for a long time, I thought it was mostly about revenge. And um, and I, I kind of titled it in my mind, Poetry uh, poetry is the best revenge. But I recently uh, did one of those manuscript um, uh, critiques with, with somebody, and he said, these aren't about revenge. These are almost all about women rebalancing something. Rhonda goes on to talk about how the woman was different than the rest of the poems in the series. This is the single poem in the whole series where there is no satisfaction. And it's so powerful to me for that failure, right? Like it really breaks my heart. What a mess, you know, the 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 perpetrator, the father who, who was abusive to her made a mess, but this wife who loved her, who loves her, who, who thinks I'm gonna help her rebalance things in this way that our violent culture tells us sometimes things need to be rebalanced. And it really frickin' falls apart. I asked Rhonda how writing the poem in the Sestina form helped tell the story. The structure of the Sestina helped me move it through the cycling, the spiraling structure of a Sestina with the words that keep coming through and through uh, led me as I wrote the spiraling story. I mean, I, I don't. I didn't say I'm going to pick this. I don't do. I, I'm going to pick a Sestina because I want to write a spiraling story, and that will help me spiral the story. <laughs> I actually picked the form, charted out with 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 a little graph so that I know wh what I have to do and where, and then just see what flows into it, like a like a real, truly like a vessel. So that the Sestina spirals made the story spiral. Before we wrapped up, I wanted to talk a little bit about her idea for building a retreat to give poets and writers a place to go and create. I own a, a small uh, multifamily house that has a back apartment that I was never really happy about 
renting to more than one person. What I, when the person who was living here moved out, I said, there's my poet's perch. And so that's what I'm doing. So all sorts of, there's a desk, there's chairs, there's a couch, there's a, there's a countertop. And my hope is very soon, very informally, not as a business, uh, but just what other writers need a place, you know, a couple of hours a week, a weekend retreat to have it themselves. But, um, but I'd also like to take maybe a couple of weeks a year where I really do that kind of thing for a writer where I say, you know, submit your writing. Why do you need a week in a writing retreat? And then offer somebody a writing retreat. Currently, Rhonda is part of the Poetry Performance Troupe, A Cauldron of Crones, with Judith Prest, Carol Grazer, and Nancy Klepsch. She volunteers on the board of the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, co-hosts a new poetry circle at the Moon and River Cafe in Schenectady, and shares her Waterford, New York retreat, Poets Perch, with other writers. Her most recently published collection of poems is The Five Books of Limericks. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. Keep listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine for more poetry buckets or go to our website to listen to past poetry segments. And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm David Moore. And I'm Keelan McPherson. Our engineer tonight is the lovely Cena Bazilla Hickey. We thank all our volunteers who made this episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley. Our segment producers tonight were Mark Dunley, Cena Bazilla Hickey, Andrea Cunliffe, Tom Francis, and your co-host, Kaylin McPherson, and me, Kaylin McPherson, and my lovely co-host, David Moore. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, produced by the community for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of the monthly donation as a sanctuary sustain, sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.